0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. My day job is as a coach helping people live better lives. I coach executives and leaders. I coach entrepreneurs and I coach civilians who are looking to improve their lives, their health, their relationships. Basically, it allows me to do what I didn't think was possible, which is to help people completely erase bad habits and different ways of being, erase negative feelings and replace them with positive ones rather than just help people develop new strategies to compete with the old ones or new thought patterns to debate the old thought patterns. And I'm looking for people to work with. And I have reduced my rates a lot so that I can just get as much practice in as I can. So I am going to raise them back up to my normal fees, but right now I just need a lot, a lot of practice and feedback, and I have teachers and mentors. So if you're interested in getting my best coaching, better than I've ever done, at a big discount, email me, hj at plantyourself.com. So let's get on with the show. Hey, coming to you from the bathroom in my apartment in Barcelona, Spain, in the bathroom with the lights out because the light and the fan are on the same switch. And in the rest of the place, which is very small, there is a washing machine running. So in the interest of audio quality, we're doing this in the dark. Today we're talking with Rebecca Wildbear, who is, whom I, I found out about through the Animas Institute, dot org. And they do incredible work on helping people reconnect with the natural world. And the founder, Bill Plotkin, has written a bunch of books. He's been on the podcast. And Rebecca Wildbear is one of the guides who takes people out into nature for four or seven day retreats to kind of understand themselves and their place in the more than human world. And when I saw that Rebecca had written a book called Wild Yoga, I was intrigued because for me, yoga is about standing around on a mat in a room, preferably air conditioned and doing a bunch of poses. And for Rebecca Wildbear, that's just beginning to skim the surface of what yoga is and could be and can do for us. And she really sees it not just as a personal practice, but as a means of social justice, environmental advocacy and human connection. So we're going to talk about that in this episode. So let's get going without further ado. Rebecca Wildbear, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah.
0: So we're talking about your book Wild Yoga and I have to admit after I I first of all I have to admit I'm only halfway through because this turns out to be one of those books that I can't cram the night before and, and just get all the details. I, you know I, I had to go slow and there's a lot of narrative and richness, but um, up, you know, up to page 130 140, I'm, I'm good. Um, and I realized that I did not really know what yoga was until I started reading this book. and so I would, I would love for you to begin by just like talking about yoga. And like the, maybe you can probably anticipate the gap between what I think yoga is and the way you present it.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, I almost didn't call the book Wild Yoga because I was afraid that if people saw yoga in the title, they would assume that it just meant yoga. Mm. And the definition of yoga by our mainstream culture is, is an asana practice only. And that's true that asana practice is like one branch on the tree of yoga, you know, and it's an important branch, but the the whole tree is sometimes goes missing. And that's kind of what my book is including is trying to bring yoga back to the whole tree of what yoga is, what it has always been, which is uh, a personal journey of understanding yourself deeply, who you really are, and also um, practices that help us connect to the world on a deeper level, that expand and stretch our consciousness. So I bring yoga back to to that larger uh, process and questioning. A set of practices that do that, and asana is included in the process, but it's not the the, the primary part. It's more like a, the, a branch of the tree.
0: And by asana, but I you wanted mean... to
1: call the, the I want to call the book yoga because I wanted to reclaim the word, you know, to mean what it really means.
0: Mm. And by an asana, you just mean like a pose or a, right, the, what 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 people yeah, do at yoga like, studios.
1: Exactly. Like, that's what I would say that people in mainstream culture, they transpose the word yoga for yoga asana. Like, I would say yoga asana to mean the poses and practices of yoga, you know, and like if I'm going to a yoga asana class, I'm going to a to a class where we go through a series of asana poses physically. Um, but yoga, the word by itself without asana has a larger meaning. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So, so let's talk about the the other word in the title. So you could say that, OK, yoga is more than just poses. It's contemplation. It's introspection. But you could do it from sort of a Western psychological perspective. You're not doing that either. You're you're saying that that yoga is overtly meant to connect us to something wild. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, in in calling my yoga wild yoga, I'm also in some ways bringing it back to its roots too. I mean, I think of the original yogis in caves, um, trying to reclaim their animal nature by coming up with poses. A lot of the pose names are named after animals. Um, to kind of I, this idea of like, somehow we need to get back into that nature and that by doing so that can help us connect to the larger world. But I definitely take it beyond that in that, uh, that was a long time ago. The world was very different at that point. And here we are in Western culture at this day and time. Um, so how do we in, 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 in this particular moment in time connect, to reconnect ourselves to our wild nature and to the, into the wild world around us? so i take us through a series of practices to do that you know starting with the body just coming home to our body how do we reconnect given that we live in a culture that is is you know stuck in in um in the head more and encourages the mind over the body and how do we do that in a culture that doesn't acknowledge the natural world as even alive or sentient? How do we start to see the world as alive and sentient, a being to whom we can be in relationship to and actually be in relationship, actually have conversations with and, you know, and and onward? How do we open our hearts, you know, when we close them related to trauma? So the book is really um, all sorts of practices that go on from there to open us to having this relationship with the wild world, this relationship with our own wild bodies, and then a relationship with all these other aspects of the world, which in many ways we're taught don't exist, or that that we can't have a relationship to, like our dreams, um, the muse, the deep imagination. Mm. So
0: you know, when I think of like you know yoga or or like wellness, I think of moving into feeling better. And there's a lot in your book that kind of feels like it goes in the opposite direction. You're inviting. Grief, inviting vulnerability, inviting a for, you know a form of, how you call it, feral female anger, right? Like ferocity, ferocity, right? Like we're 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 not you're not you're not inviting us to a happy place necessarily,
1: right? Well, you know, yoga is often associated with can be associated just with you know feeling peaceful. And I am inviting, inviting relaxation, and that is what yoga does. It, you know, we relax and, you know, drop into our bodies. But also, when we drop into our bodies, we can feel the truth of what's here, um, you know, what's really inside of us related to having been alive and and being presently alive in the world. And I'm encouraging us to really be in our feelings. A lot of times there can be a lot of shame and guilt about what we feel, like if we feel angry, oh, I'm not really supposed to feel that, or If I feel sad, oh, gosh, there must be something wrong. i got to fix that. I should feel better. And I'm actually kind of inviting people to feel what they really feel, um, what's really here related to our lives and the world we live in and how that that actually can be the most valuable thing we can do. And that is part of being in relationship with the world.
0: Hmm. Can can you tell maybe a a story from your life about when you kind of first realized um, you know i guess as, as an adult because when you talk about as a child like all this stuff came naturally or this this you know understanding that the world was alive and that trees were your friends but kind of like coming back to to that knowing because for me and i've read you know every single one of bill plotkin's books and been following him for years so I, i'm tenderized a little bit but still for me i feel like i'm still in my head and a lot of this is is very sort of Theoretical, and I'm trying to understand it clinically. Can you talk about an experience that kind of pried you away from this culture enough to reclaim that relationship with with the wildness in yourself and in the world?
1: Sure. I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, different stages of it. I would say, you know, like you said, as a child, I was connected to trees and nature, but I was also very pre-scholastic. And you know, when I went to school, when I went to college, I was editor of the college newspaper, and I was an A student. I was quite into into my studies and things going on there. W- one of the first things that drew me away, I'd always liked nature. I'd always liked being in nature, but that didn't mean that I took the time for it. Um, so a couple of things happened in my later college years. One was I worked at a summer camp in the Catoctin Mountains in Maryland. I lived in Maryland, grew up in Maryland. My college was in Maryland. The Catoctin Mountains are near where Camp David is, and um, I went to a summer I worked at a summer camp for people with disabilities there, and it was one of the wildest places I've ever lived. I went to night, I went to sleep at night, you know, looking at the stars and hearing the sound of the trees blowing in the wind. And I realized how much happier I was living in a wild place. and I like it felt alive. And I think that can be the first step for people is noticing, wow, like how I feel in a wild place and with nature around. like I actually, like if, if I really drop into my body and notice what it's like to be here. And uh, I think a lot of people, you know, as we noticed, even during COVID-19, people have preferences for being in nature. Everyone flocked to wild places. So, you know, that's a start. Like that's a noticing, wow, I'm actually my body feels better here. I am I want to go to this place. That's the beginning of a relationship. Even if we're unconscious to it, something's happening. Um, when I was um in when I was also in college, I also got cancer. And that was another wake- up call in a big way to me, around what really mattered or what was important, because suddenly I thought I might die, uh even though I was young, that that had never crossed my mind that that could happen. And like most people, I thought I was pretty invincible, I hadn't been ill very much, and um, but the odds were higher that I would die than that I wouldn't, and so suddenly mm-hmm. i was I was taken to a place of you know um what really matters. In, in, in my life, in the world, and, you know, starting to feel something inside myself that was precious and sacred. I'd always felt nature as a kind of God, God you know, like a mystic, a place where where God lived. Um, and then, you know, when I started working with um, Animus Valley Institute when I was 29, the first time I, I, I mean, I became, I'll skip, I skipped over, I'll, I was an outward bound instructor, um, I was a wilderness therapist, so because I preferred being in nature, I found ways in my life, to be there. Like, that's where I would, I, I had my job, so I, I would have to be there. And mm. I was happy there. I cared about that more than making money. Um, so then I still was missing something because I felt like even though I was in nature with people and even though I had connected to a sacred place in me and I felt nature is sacred, I felt still like there was a deeper conversation that needed to happen, you know, that could happen, that I was still somehow missing something that. Some, in, in some way, I still viewed nature like this, this backdrop, you know, this place, not like I was connecting to. I wasn't connecting to it at the deepest, you know, level I could. So I, you know, started looking into eco-psychology and I even went back. I even started studying with Animus Valley Institute and actually going out on the land and learning methods to talk and listen to nature. And it took time, but I mean, actually in that first five day intensive, I had an experience, the one I write about in chapter two, uh, with, uh, going out into the natural world and having the conversation with the squirrel. That was one of the first conversations that I had that just impacted me that magic can happen out there. And then I think I write about, I think I write about it in chapter three, some of my quest that happened six months later and Um, the hike I did in the Canyon that happened after that, the magical experience I mentioned in chapter three where, um, you know, I, I was seeking to open to my heart and, um, the mysterious response I had from nature where something that I, some flowers that I was with, you know, and praying with the night before and placed on a flower, like they suddenly were moved in the night to another really more beautiful location in the middle of the water that I had been praying to the the night before and crying to the night before. So, you know, there was many magical experiences like that. That was one of the first, but there's, you know, ways when I experienced the natural world talking back to me, like things happening that um, were surprising that I realized that it was an alive being. It wasn't just a backdrop. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was actually, it wasn't, it wasn't an idea. Somebody was telling me, I was actually having an experience of that multiple experiences of that, that were undeniable. Hmm. See, so I've, I've,
0: you know, I've read many of those sort of, you know, anecdotes in Bill, Bill Plotkin's books and in your book. And I'm, I'm like looking back on my life thinking, how many of those experiences have I had and not noticed or blown off or told myself, well, you know, you're making that up. Right. Or like thinking, like, I'll, you know, I'll finish a book and I'll be really inspired and I'll go out in the backwoods and hug a tree and like, is anybody watching me? Because I feel silly as shit right now. Like, what, what do what do you see people needing? Because to me, there's such a chasm between the work that you do and the, and the understanding you have and you know, the, the incredible resource that's available to us in terms of healing and our willingness to step into it, acknowledge it and be open to it. And I feel that and I'm speaking for myself as much as anybody else.
1: Yeah, I I think I I think you're touching on a main a main piece. Um, You know, one of our one of our traumas in life as humans, there's many, is is um, I'd say not not appropriate mirroring. You know, when we're children by adults. In other words, we go outside, have amazing experiences. We come back and we want to tell adults about it, but you know they're busy and they got other things to do, and and they're in a hurry usually and. They can't necessarily, they didn't maybe track their own great stories. So um, somehow kids grow up and we grow up learning to discount our own stories. I can't tell you how many times uh, when I've been guiding in the wilderness, especially with people for their first time who go out into nature on the wander invitation that I offer, who come back and say, oh, well, nothing happened for me and i say oh well can you tell me about that nothing <laughs> and as we as i listen to it almost always something happened and it just um it, it happens at a more subtle level sometimes than in our culture which is you know used to like iPhones and movies and just uh, i would call gross experiences or being entertained uh, what can happen in nature can sometimes be more subtle to our senses and it takes time for our senses to open up and experience that so a lot of times it's in the beginning it's just helping people begin to open their senses to what is happening and begin to honor their own stories of what is happening and then when they honor their own stories the next step is once they realize something happened then they can begin to go back and know that um how to continue the conversation oh something happened i i i might want to go back and say thank you or ask another question or you know offer something and see Mm -hmm. what happens next stay Mm -hmm. in the conversation
0: Mm. yeah it's it's weird that you know i'm like i'm more my brain is more willing to assign sentience to chat gpt than to the garden you know and the meadow in my backyard like Mm -hmm. you know like it's hard for me to think of them as as sentient. I'll read science. It's like, well, they're sharing resources and they're, they're producing chemicals and, and pheromones in response to the predation and all this stuff. And it's still, it's easier for me to believe a computer is, uh, is sentient because it's speaking my language than the, the, the wild world.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the com- computer was built to meet our Western mind where it is in Western culture. And so I, I can completely relate. It's, it's it's so addictive sometimes it's hard for people to even put it down or step away. And there's all sorts of cultural expectations sometimes around staying connected. <clears throat> when I go out to the wild sometimes, it takes like, a, like a two or three days sometimes. And I notice when I'm off my phone or uh, my computer and I'm out in nature, so my eyes and my being are actually connecting with these other beings instead of that that uh, my consciousness starts to shift and it takes some time in that I start noticing the details on things. I start noticing, you know, the wind blowing and when it blows and the way it blows and the quality of the water running and, you know, insects or animals and their movements. And, and I start changing as I, I think of us sometimes as digesting images or experiences. And as my being is digesting that relationship and those experiences, I start changing um, I'm different when I, than when I'm on the computer, you know, digesting the all those experiences. So I agree mm. with you, and I think one of the I think in in my deepen your ecological connection step one was go outside for a walk without your without your iPhone, <laughs> and that can be hard because we're used to um, well, listening to great music or um, pot, great podcasts or you know checking our email or our iMessages while we're out there. Go go outside without it and begin to start to see what your connection is. You know, let yourself let your attention be really available to those others. But it it can be hard. It's a little the transition between the two is is a steep curve is a steep cliff. One is very different from the other.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes I'll go out with this express purpose of just being in nature without my iPhone. And the first thing that occurs to me is, oh, I wish I had my plant identifier app with me. <laughs>
1: Yep. I agree. And some and sometimes it can be hard. I think this is another thing I mentioned relative to that first or second step is even if we go out without our technology our mind starts thinking like um oh, okay, well now I'm on this walk so let me just get organized with what I'm going to have to do when I get back and figure everything out what I'm going to say, how I'm going to do the rest of my day, the rest of my week, the rest of my life, just figure everything out, just think about stuff. And then we're still not present to the world around us cuz we're just you know planning the future we're in our mind or we're reviewing the past uh so how do we really be present with the world around us and you know that's kind of what the the steps are to try to take us into that just into that relationship it starts really with noticing the other it's kind of like when you're with your partner right and you're on your iphone or you're on your um, computer or you're thinking about stuff you know you're not really present with this other human sitting next to you and And that might be okay sometimes because maybe you're both, you know, working or taking care of other things. But in moments where you're really trying to be present with each other in your relationship, in your connection, it doesn't really work when you have those other things around, you know, Mm. pulling your attention away. And it's the same with the wild world. You know, if we're really to be attentive to the wild world, it means bringing our presence centered attention Mm. and also being willing to do this as a practice, meaning we'll probably fail just like meditation practice you know we sit there and try not to think about stuff but we do so we we do the best we can and you know i noticed that's sometimes why longer stays in the wilderness can work better over time because it can take time to to disconnect to detach ourselves and and um and to really drop in so we can do the best we can in an hour two hours three hours um and and sometimes longer immersions allow for a, a deeper uh, time of, you know, really leaning into that relationship.
0: Yeah. So I think there's, there's a selection bias for people who are going to be interested in this. And it's people who like love nature, right? (laughs) And loving nature these days comes with huge helpings of, of grief, either felt or repressed and guilt for being part of this culture. Like, doesn't that doesn't that either contaminate or make, make it extremely complicated to go out to nature to give us things to like, you know, heal me, make me feel better when like I'm part of this culture that's destroying you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. That's what that's a, what, such a great point. It's, you know, <clears throat> it's hard to how do we be in relationship with the wild world? It's sometimes it can be like, depending where we are. Um, I mean, there are still some truly wild places which exist where we can go and feel nature and be immersed. And then there's places there's so much loss and devastation and more and more each day, you know, more lands and species die and things don't seem to be slowing down on that uh, on that front. People are taking actions to make things better, but the actions that destroy are still continuing in large part. And there are people trying to stop it. But but it's a you know, it's not an easy thing to do so I agree. It, it, can, it can come with lots of lots of grief feelings. Um, for me, it's not really it's not really a choice to just say, oh, well, well, I guess nature's gone now, so I'll just move on. You know, it's first of all, it's not gone. There's there's still lots of forests and wild places left, um, still lots of wild animals left. It's still here and it is being harmed. Um, so part of to me, part of that relationship is is a letting myself feel that it's like, How can we get away from that? Even when we're in love with human partners, I mean they get sick and they get illnesses and you know eventually they will, you know, die. Um you know, I think love and grief go together, whether it's with the human world or the natural world, like part of being in love with anything and opening our heart to anything means that we're also opening our heart to the hard times that can come up with that other. And right now the natural world it has both beauty to still give and offer. I sometimes um, and I'm sh- very, you know, really shocked is the right word by how much nature still gives me and how much nature still gives all the people that I take out. I'm kind of like, how do you still keep giving, you know, given what humans are doing? Um, but it's just nature is itself and that's what it does. You know, that's who it is. And it does, it still keeps giving to people and still keeps giving to me. That's its nature. Uh, and so it, it doesn't seem to be stopping despite what it doesn't seem to stop for me. It, it hasn't stopped loving me despite what humans are doing, but it's Mm -hmm. love for me has opened my heart so that I can get, that I can't help but be angry or sad um, about ecological devastation that I can't help but see what I can do to help. Even if the situation might seem impossible on some fronts, that it's not about necessarily looking at the long-term view because we don't know the future one way or the other. We could, we could make predictions one way or the other, but I, it's about, you know, re-establishing like a healthy relationship with this being that I love and care about. So deeply that's like a, an other, but it's also like God to me, you know, what I, would I protect God, you know, what I, would I stand up for, for what I love. And, you know, and so part of that is, is doing what I can to help, Shift people's consciousness, bring people into relationship with nature, and and connect that to also um, prioritizing the wild world is like, um, excuse me, of all the political issues there are, isn't the most important one Earth? Given that you know she's our mother and we get everything from her, our very life, our very oxygen, you know, our very water that we drink, um, the land, everything, isn't that relationship the most important of all? So you know that's part of of bringing us back to, but people are in different stages in the journey. And sometimes we just need to wake up and be loved and be held and know who we are. And that's, you know, that's part of what it takes. That's mm-hmm. where we are. But ultimately, you know, as you know, in my book, the final chapter leads to become a love warrior for earth, you know, to, to bring our love back to um, helping, helping the world.
0: Right. Yeah. I was wondering about that, especially when I, I saw, Before I got the book, even that one of the endorsements was from Derek Jensen, who is for folks who don't know, like, you know, certainly an eco warrior and you might say a little rough edged in, you know, he's like he's not writing about, you know, sort of love and spiritual development so much as like he's written like the only reason he doesn't blow up dams is he's afraid of getting caught. Like he, you know, he wants a war and he can see the enemy. And it's, you know, it's not moose and elk and elephants and salmon. It's you know, other human beings. I'm, I'm wondering how you, how you navigate, you know, with, with the, like a, a sort of rage and anger and grief on the one hand and an invitation through this book and through your work and through your life to the people who are doing it to say, you know, you can choose a different path. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Derek is definitely one of my... Um, friends and you know kind of um, I look up to his capacity to to what I would say stand up for the natural world and you know kind of unrelentlessly <laughs> you know um, and um, that's you know I think sometimes what it takes um, to when we look at the environmental movement um, a lot of things are called green and part of the environmental movement but they're really about saving humans and saving civilization and one of the things I like about Derek's work is he's unrelenting about what's best. What you know, well, what's best for the earth? What's best for the animals? What's best for the natural world? Um, even in um, Bill Platkin's work, who you know I've studied with for a long time, he'll say that an elder is somebody who can hold the human consciousness and the earthly consciousness in their in themselves at the same time when they make decisions. They can hold what's best for the well-being of both. And I think that. The, the mainstream culture, when it talks about politics or green movements, most of the time it's just thinking about what's best for the humans. I love I love um, Derek's voice, and he's inspired me because he's actually one person that I think switches that around and thinks about what's best for the Earth. Hmm. And um, so, by his being able to speak like that, it actually helps all of us come back into balance if we're willing to actually go there, you know, and actually take that perspective in, um, and you know when it comes to even what's best for the future of all beings, human and non-human, what's best for the earth is really, I think where it's at. Cause if the earth is, is destroyed or gone, you know, a hundred years into the future, it's the humans aren't going to be here either. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that, um, like I said, people are in different places in the journey and the three sections of my book go through different places, you know, wild, The six chapters in wild are a lot about coming back to our own wild nature, being able to listen to the earth, being able to listen to our dreams, our bodies, our hearts, our emotions, you know, rewilding ourselves. You know, we were raised in this, um, civilized dominant culture. So there's a lot of things in us that are just, you know, made to live in that. And sometimes we can feel the ache of what's missing, but how do we open up to what's missing? That's what, you know, rewilding ourselves. Uh, the second section, which is, uh, holy longing is about opening to the spirit and the soul journey most of us know especially sometimes when we wanted to disconnect to the dominant culture that there's this there's these other realms that are transpersonal like bill's journey is all about soul and our unique gifts that we bring and how do we connect to the purpose we're here to live in our mythopoetic image and spirit is a lot about our connection to everything you know the the um the totality you know what john muir said that Anytime you pick up one thing in the world, it's hitched to everything else. Like and the cosmic cosmos, like beyond this earth, like the larger view. So you know that's what the second section takes us into a journey of how we go on a journey of soul and spirit, and then the third section, beloved world, takes us back, takes us into how do we serve the world, which I think is a natural proponent of, you know, if we become he- heal, you know, healed and healthy enough. I never consider any of us totally healed and healthy in this culture. I mean, sometimes you can wait forever and think, I'm not quite healed enough. You know, I still think this, I still feel this. Well, you know, the parts of us are never going to be, you know, quote, perfect. But we get to a tipping point, I feel like, where we're healed and healthy enough and we know enough about our purpose and our connection to everything that we just want to give. You know, we want to give back to the world. So Um, And that's also with an understanding of uh, like a sober understanding of where the world is, you know, where the earth is and where we are in this in this moment in time. And so how do I come back and uh, offer myself? And that's where, you know, there's a number of chapters in chapter six about that. And a lot of my book is about connecting um, our visionary selves that dream and imagine and that dream with the earth and listen to the earth and imagine with the earth. Um, to the challenge of ecological devastation and where we are in these times. How do we bring that visionary self? How do we not just um, necessarily go into old narratives of, Oh, I have to do this or I have to do that, but also not um, turn our face away from the reality of, you know, what's going on and the kinds of things that are needed. Like, it's sort of like holding both and going and envisioning for what is, what is mine to do? What is the way for me to offer myself in these times? And, part of that to me is becoming a love warrior for the earth because, well, it's a real missing piece in our culture. Um, you know, like activists are kind of usually volunteering and they're also usually that, that word can even be people that are, you know, put down for like, what that, why, why are you bothering to do this? Or, um, or you're too angry or that's such an extreme perspective or things like that. But I'm wanting to connect the personal journey in wild yoga to the journey to care for our planet, you know, to, to, to come back. And I'm, I'm not proposing exactly what that's going to look like for anybody. I'm actually proposing a relationship between the t- between the earth and our visionary selves and our dreams that can, um, invite us to ask for help and get mm-hmm. help and that, and to act on the visions that we receive.
0: Yeah. I guess it's like, you know, going into a a marriage or, you know, a, a dyadic relationship where, like you wouldn't say, this is how you do it, right? But you are saying, listen and speak and, you know, uncover your truth and it'll kind of muddle itself, we'll, we'll muddle through together as opposed to like, this is this is the formula for a relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, relationship, yeah, re- relationship is about listening. You know, um, I also say um, sometimes to activists, well, I don't know, like, how do you want, I wouldn't want somebody to save me if they didn't want to talk to me, (laughs) talk to me, you know, (laughs) like have a relationship, like, what do I want? You know, let's, let's have a conversation. So I'm, you know, I'm inviting people into a relationship in wild yoga where they have a conversation with the earth and dreams. You know, I've always disliked politics very much. So it's rather ironic that I even included it in my book, and that I've even gone there in my life, because if I'd have had my druthers, I would I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, mm. You know, I, I was I was coming. I was a philosophy, religious studies major in college. Like I was about the sacred and the earth was my sacred connection. And all this work was to take me closer to to, you know, like the the greater powers of life and the sacred inside me. But, you know, when you go out on a vision quest and you and you listen, you don't know what the earth's going to ask of you. That's that's the scary thing so the you know what was asked of me is to be invited into the kinds of realms that i'm you know most terrified of and uncomfortable with and and that you know this is where i'm needed and this is the direction to go so i think that's just it we can't know ahead of time what we might get asked but when we do you know we it's it's having the courage to go and ask and to let go of the comfortable life we might have established that might be just good for me egoically and be open to where we might be carried and where it takes us and what it might ask us of us and how it will grow us in the meantime.
0: Mm. So I I want to segue off of that that last bit about being a a warrior, loving warrior for the Earth into the the last bit of every chapter is a yoga pose. And so this, this one, there's warrior pose. And I love the way you kind of describe these poses that I've done. So many times, you know, on the mat in a class with a video from memory where I'm focused on, okay, turning the hip this way and, you know, lifting from the chest, but never the, the spiritual or, or relational meaning behind it. And so, like, maybe we could begin this conversation by talking about warrior pose and what, what it, first of all, what it is and then what, what we can get out of it, other than you know, great, great glutes, buns of steel.
1: <laughs> great, yeah. Um, the, you know, I mentioned. I think I mentioned the war, warrior pose in that feral female ferocity chapter. But we could also um, bring it into the love warrior for the earth too. As part, I, I think it's part of it. Love warrior is a later chapter in the book, so we've already taken into mm-hmm. account the feral female ferocity. But warrior pose is a pose that, you know, kind of brings us out into the world. Some poses kind of like they take us deep into the cave, deep into ourselves, deep into the dream time. Like, well, if you look at child pose, for example, that's the pose I used in Dream with the Cave Womb. That's a pose that kind of like takes us more deeply inward into the cave of ourselves or the cave of, you know, the psychic cave of our imagination. But warrior pose is kind of about standing up, engaging and meeting the world. It's like standing firm, standing strong and There's a real solidity to our legs and the stance that we have. It's like we're ready to engage with life and the challenges that are ahead. You know, our arms are up. Our chest is out and open. You know, there's different stances with our arms and the ways that we move and the ways that our hips move. There's different variations of warrior that might, you know, that might um, work differently for different situations. You know, warrior one, we're standing front and center. We're ready to engage with what's right in front of us. You know, warrior two, we're facing we're still facing front, but our body's out to the side. So we might be ready to engage a larger, larger span of, you know, uh, what's it, what's around us. Then we have peaceful warrior, right. Where we're kind of standing back. Maybe we're not ready. We're still standing firm in our legs, but we're not ready to take, you know, maybe any direct action or engagement We're you know, we're peaceful. We're just, you know, witnessing what's going on. We're watching, uh, you know, there's, so there's all sorts of stances that we might take in warrior. And I think, That that energy we're calling into ourselves, um, we're calling into ourselves a kind of capacity to to stand firm and engage with the world and try different movements with our arms. And, oh, I wonder what this will do if I stand in this way. Oh, I wonder what this will do. I'll try this out. You know, how does this feel in me and how does this meet the world? How do I receive the world when I'm in this position? So, you know, there's stories that we can feel into through our bodies in the different poses, which is what I do in in sharing the different that one and other poses
0: so the the, the, the pose that I, yeah go ahead
1: i i love warrior pose i think in particular you know i i speak a little bit against patriarchy in my book um and also um i've listened to many podcasts myself on patriarchy and often warrior is considered you know a, like part of the patriarchy and bad uh mm. you know like going to war at all and there are a lot of aspects of warring and fighting and anger and violence that are are very unhealthy. No doubt about it. You know, men being forced to wars that aren't for good causes, aren't what they believe in. Um, and people, you know, obviously all sorts of violence, violent acts that aren't good. But there's also a kind of warrior that is, um, I think, a healthy warrior that's um, that, that will stand up and protect what it loves. You know, it's a natural instinct. It's not at all. not at all bad in fact it's missing sometimes um we talk about toxic masculinity in our culture but there's also like i'd say the toxic feminine quality and these are archetypal qualities which exist in all people regardless of gender or sex um you know is but the archetypal feminine has a quality of being submissive like um just Mm. you know going along or being pleasing And, and that's like that's like not that's missing this um this warrior energy that has the capacity to stand firm um, in their understanding of what they love and what they want to protect, and it may not always be about speaking or being physical or being acti- acting in particular ways, but it's it starts with that standing firm in your body and being ready to engage.
0: That's
1: yeah, a and I, pose.
0: and I you know and I love that you know that you you included that section about the uh, men's prison and like so that like when you talk about patriarchy you're separating it from the people who are infected by it. That like, you know, the men who have done the, some of the worst things in our society are, are perpetrators. And they're also the victims of, of this, you know, colonizing thought pattern and pattern of being um, there was a, there was a line, I'm not going to get it exactly, but it was basically like, you know, patriarchy attacks, what's vulnerable. And I was thinking about that in terms of men that I know, who have become hard because whatever you know the most beautiful parts of themselves were vulnerable were poetic or shy or quiet or appreciative of beauty and you know those were the parts that they we were made fun of for called gay for you know shamed for and learned to hide at all costs especially from themselves
1: mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, when men are missing, missing the feminine quality in them. So when, when male body people are missing the feminine quality in themselves, you know, it's hard, it's hard to connect. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a big loss there. You know, it's, there's a big difference, um, for me in meeting a man who has a fem the feminine quality in him and, and where it's missing. It's, you know, this feminine quality that, that we, that I'm calling back in, in the practices of wild yoga. And I'm calling us to honor is it's missing in women. It's missing in men. It's missing archetypally it's missing in the world. And that's, you know, what I'm wanting to honor and call back in what, you know, patriarchy exists when there's, you know, when that's denigrated, when that archetypal quality is denigrated, men can't embody it. Women can't even embody it anymore because women are supposed to be more like men if they're going to you know, like achieve or rise in the system, and you know, and the, and these feminine qualities that are very listening, you know, that have to do with listening and that and have to do with honoring the earth, are, you know, gone or they're they're considered they're belittled as nothing, and so, you know, I'm kind of calling all those aspects of the feminine back in. And I'm also calling aspects of what I would call archetypal masculine energy, which, you know, about protecting that, you know, in, in a, in a healthy relationship, there's a, which we all have inner and feminine. There's, there's part of us that can protect and cherish what's most valuable. And that includes these, these feminine energies of ourselves, um, and, and the world and others, and it's largely missing in our society. And so we, most people grow up, men and women missing it in different ways
0: yeah and, and you're saying in the book that the body has to participate in the conversation that we can't just do this on the couch right and we can't just do it in psychotherapy
1: yeah you know I I've, I've been a psychotherapist and i've been in psychotherapy and i mean it's great to have great conversations and it can very much help to have somebody listen to you and share your stories, but there's a place it it stops. It ends. There's places it can't take you. And those places are places where your physical body has to have the conversation, has to have the courage to go out and have the conversation itself. Mm.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is you have a couple of stories about therapists or guides, mentors to you who were careless or ego driven and caused some harm. And like, of course human, humans are going to do that, right? I think you even say like you know there there was a, there was a section about I think in divine love that like the purpose of the infatuation is to kind of teach us from from I can't remember what indigenous group, but to, to, that we learn to love the small the person with the small problems and the small <laughs> words that, that they're they're a manifestation of the divine. And you know, like one of the big things in in psychotherapy is like attachment, and the attachment, the safe attachment with this with a therapist can heal people. But we're all going to screw it up. And and there's, I think something I kept reading into this was like attachment with nature is really the ultimate safety.
1: Nature is always there for me. I mean, I think I wrote in receive the love of trees a lot about that. Is you know, I went out there. I think I shared a story where I went out there after being triggered by something my mom said and how the natural world, and that that was after having a relationship with trees for three years. And so they were who I was leaning on to help me love myself. And trees are just always available to listen. I mean, I I have, I mean, there's been maybe, you know, conversations can surprise you and there's been a few exceptions to that with trees, but most of the time um, I've talked to trees, they've been, you know, they've invited me into their forest of love and giving, which is just what they do. You can tell I just love trees in my book. It's just a theme throughout the book to honor the intelligence of forests and trees. Could have called the whole book forests or trees. Um, but they're there. And those primary relationships, I would say, even now, help me um, so much. And and that that's what, you know, I totally agree with you. Humans are we're, are all wounded and limited and they love us and help us in moments. And we can have great friendships with humans, too. But there's drama and disappointment and all sorts of things, too. And trees are always there and always, you know, most of the time always available to, to connect and to love. And, you know, for me, when I sit with a tree, I tap into not only feeling loved, but also um, I begin to be at the edge of tapping into the greater intelligence and consciousness that they have. I mean, I won't say that I certainly don't fully take it on. I'm, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not fully a tree or a forest, but just being in the presence of their wisdom is being in the presence to me of one of the greatest teachers humans could ever have in the whole world.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, and you, I loved what you said in in the description of tree pose as to while you're doing it, like imagine that you're around longer than many human lifetimes. And you, you also talk about being able to understand yourself and your mother and have some um, grace and forgiveness when you looked over the span of multiple generations, when you saw, you know, your great grandmother's wounding your grandmother. Because of patriarchy, because the one place a woman can have some control is over her own daughter. And it's almost like you took a tree perspective to be able to to see that big picture and find, and find some peace and solace in there.
1: Yeah, the conversation, which, you know, always takes us to surprising places. You know, I shared a conversation, yeah, where the trees, you know, they see you in such a deep time perspective. Uh, they see over decades and, and generations, and you know, of course, humans we we tend to see well. This is what happened today or this week, and um and so yeah, the tree invited me into a much larger perspective of the patterns going on, which then made you know the momentary interaction seem like oh wow, this is just this is not about anything. There's not something big happening here or surprising. This is just an overarching pattern that's that's here and part of part of things, and you know, and then it can enable me to see too. It's not even about you know, I know my mother loves me, even though there was that interaction that that was triggering. But it's it it just it taps you into the deeper love and the capacity to see the pattern. So I wasn't stuck in this place. That's it's all about this one interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. So the pose that surprised me the most was in the, the chapter on romance, and you you know you, you start with this, this this lovely story about this you know your first crush and writing his name backwards in your diary and, and, you know, just you know, sort of evoked that full flush of adolescent infatuation and first love and the pose. And you, then you, you broaden it into like the importance of romance and what long, these longings can tell us about ourselves and the world. And, and you end with chair pose. And I was like, where did chair pose come from? Like, like, I've got to say, that's like my least favorite pose of all. And for people who don't know it, you're sort of standing up your hands are like doing something in front of you and you're bending like your butt's going back and your knees are bent. And it's just like, I got to just got to fucking endure this thing until the instructor says we can move out of it. And hopefully the next pose will be corpse pose. Like what were you what was what was going on where, where a chair pose became an embodiment or, or a vehicle for romance and, and that kind of love?
1: Well, you know, chair pose is literally like sitting in a seat, right? Sitting in the seat. It's not there. You know, it's not an actual seat, but we our body's kind of in a pose, like we're sitting in seat and the chapter, you know, which is about following the mystery of what we love. I would say following the mystery of what we love is what guides us to our soul is what invites us to sit in the seat of ourselves. And it isn't easy. You're right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not like an easy pose, you know, it's, it's so dangerous and, and difficult to, to have the courage to really know our hearts and to really tr- know what we love and to actually put ourselves out on an edge. I always think of human culture like we like to keep all the possibilities open, you know, have all the not make a choice. But, you know, we could have this life and this life and that sure. life and this, you know, and, and then, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not sure I want to choose just yet. But when we're when we are vulnerable and following what we love, we kind of make a leap. We kind of act to take it, to make a choice in some way, and also, you know, I'm I'm connecting it a lot also to when we fall in love. This is you know such a big topic. I don't know if I can cover it fully in this time, but I'll just touching into it. How when we fall in love with something outer, how is it actually about who we really are? How can we reclaim those projections as a psychological word used? But how can we take that back in? If I'm in love with something outer, part of me is saying that is who I'm supposed to be. Like it's, I want to be with the other because I'm like, I want that to be what my life is about. That's why if I get with that other, maybe my life will be about that. But Mm -hmm. really it's about this other is inside of me. So how do I embody those qualities and carry them into my life going forward and be what become, what I love. And that's certainly not at all easy. I mean, the the easy part would be, oh, I just want to get with someone else and let them do that. And then let them love on me and then that's in my life. Um, the much harder move that's a lot like chair pose is, no, I, I'm going to be that. I'm going to have the fire, which is, you know, chair pose has a lot of fire. I'm going to have the fire in me to be that and to sit in the seat of myself, to hold that seat. And then I, I go into chair flow because um, chair flow itself, it has a lot of movements. It makes chair pose a little easy by the easier, by the way, because when you hold chair pose, you know, that's pretty intense. When you do chair flow, you know you're actually only in chair pose for a moment in the flow in a whole flow in like a series mm. but the flow calls in the grace and the movement of breath and body like a, a vinyasa flow that allows us to court and i say you know making ourselves beautiful we also call the other to us which is our inner beloved you know sometimes this is a hard concept for people to to get because sometimes it can take a while for the inner beloved to show up to us like what the what the who um, it, it can be a lot easier to live in a projective mindset. It's like it's out there. It's in this other human. But, you know, we can call our inner beloved to us by courting. And I, I get into that in the later chapter more. But it, it's, it's somewhat in this chapter, too, with the chair flow is that we're inviting a flow to court the mystery of what we love. Like, for example, sometimes we don't even know what we love. I mean, what do I really love? Like it can be hard to what is what is it for sure? You know, because I'm not talking about, you know, a nice car or um, some, something material I'm talking about on a deeper level, like what really matters to us, like why we're here, what do we really love about this life? What would we give our life for? Who would we give our life for? You know, that kind of love. And sometimes we don't know right off the bat, what do we love? So we court it, we can court it through chair flow, which is, you know, trying to make ourselves as beautiful in our presence in our breath as mm. to call the beloved to us, to call a sense of what we love to our consciousness, to our understanding.
0: Mm. Um, I'm, like thinking about, mm. I'm thinking about the quote that you share from Martin Preshtel about hunting.
1: Right, right. Says, yeah, that's right, one of I, my favorites. I,
0: yeah, it's amazing. Um, I'll, I'll read it, if that's all right. <laughs> case you, um, Perfect. So sometimes it doesn't help to know what it is you are really hunting or what love is supposed to look like because the beauty that the hunter becomes and creates through his willingness to fail in pursuit of what he deeply longs for but doesn't yet understand can cause the incomprehensible thing to show its divine face. So there's a a lot in there about vulnerability, about risk. It's almost like, you know, you have to be willing to risk it all for the kind of love that will really fill you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I love that quote. It has so many levels to it, doesn't it? Um, you know, the willingness to fail. That's like, what? People are like, what? I mean, most of the consciousness in the world a lot is, um, well, I think I should use my time wisely and go after what I can attain. Mm. that's not courting (laughs) (laughs) because courting, you're willing to fail and you're willing to make yourself vulnerable to what really matters. You don't know if you'll ever quote, get it. In fact, you probably won't get it in, in, in whatever way your mind is thinking about, but in some other way, um, in moving toward it, you become it, you know, you court, you court what you love until you can become, become, become that. Hmm.
0: So I want to, I want to close by, by asking you to invite listeners to do something to begin before, and, you know, and I'll tell them, like, go get the book, Wild Yoga by Rebecca Wild Bear. But while they're waiting for it to arrive, what's a, what's a, a practice or a thing that people can do who have, you know, hung on your every word and are resonating and want to begin this journey?
1: Well, I'll start with the the first two chapters. One is about listening to the intelligence of the body, and two is about deepening your ecological perception. You know, it's like the body and nature. Those are those are places to begin. You know, some of my practices in the first chapter are kind of like lie down and and feel your body. You know, how does it want to move? What does it want to do? I always say the first step might be losing your mind. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people to lose your mind. You know, that's And and just come down into your body. Like, how does it want to move? Does it want to, like, lie still for a while? You know, this can even be a practice you can do on a morning where you don't feel like you have to get up right away. Like, let yourself lie around if that's what you want to do. Sometimes that is what people want to do to start with because our culture is so fast-paced. Or lie on your mat and, like, just notice, you know, if you know yoga, you might do some moves you know. Or if you don't know yoga, that's okay. Just lie there and, like, feel, how does my body... Want to be still or move? Like actually starting to track what's really happening in your body. If you do a yoga practice, or you watch one, or you participate in one, um, do that. And then after that practice is done, you know you're into your body because you just did the practice. Or maybe you you know you do some kind of other thing with your body. You you run or you swim. You know, so you've pulled yourself into your body through an activity. Then just lie there and and say, you know, what does my body really want now? What is it? How does it want to move? Or take your body out to nature and, you know, sit with your back against a tree or one of your own favorite places, you know, and and just ask yourself, what do I love about this place? Why do I like to keep coming back here? You know, can I look around and see who's here? What are the beings that I'm most attracted to? Those would be great starting places to just connecting to your to your body and nature. Mm. I
0: guess what what you're saying is that no matter how uh, civilized, we've become, our bodies are still wild. Our bodies are still nature. Like, we don't have to go to Borneo or hike in Alaska to encounter nature. It's like you you are nature, right?
1: Exactly. I mean, I live in Mancus and um, I, I saw Mancus, Colorado, and it's a lot of farmland. There's still wild places I can drive to, but you know, part of me wishes the forest was still out here rather than the farmland, and I still see the trees. But a mile and a half away, I can go to the Manko State Park and walk along the river and in and the trees and, and connect with some. It's just a very small spot. You know, it's like a mile loop, but it's a, it's a place. And I can go further, drive further and go out to other places. But, yeah, wherever we are, nature is here. And wherever we are, nature once lived beneath the ground where we are, even in cities. We can imagine the city that was here before we were here, you mm. know, before it became a city. It was wild. And we, too, are, are wild bodies. And I started this book out slowly with these two chapters because I wanted everybody to feel like they could join this, this um, process, that nobody is, is beyond, is, is too far gone. I mean, we're all pretty, we've all been indoctrinated with, with Western, you know, mainstream culture. But there are, there's a pathway back. And these practices, to me, are a pathway back to wildness of our body wildness of connection to nature and, uh, opening to these relationships, which we've been taught to disconnect with, which can really give us guidance personally and planetary, you know, right now for who to be, who we are and how to live. Mm. But step-by-step step, starting with the basics.
0: All right. All right. Beautiful. Well, Rebecca Wild Thank you so much for writing this book. It really is a, a love letter to to each of us and to the world. And thank you for taking the time today.
1: Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful talking with you and um, being hearing about what your questions are and perspectives on the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks hey. for reading and thanks for sharing me on your show.
0: You bet. And how can people uh, follow you, stay in touch? I know you've written a couple of um, a few of the newsletter anonymous. Uh, Valley newsletters how can people mm-hmm. follow your work yep. get in the book
1: um, well, I have a website Rebecca Wild Bear it's just my name all lowercase no spaces Rebecca and so you can go on there and you'll catch you know what I'm up to you'll see programs online and programs in person uh, that I do with wild yoga you know I also do programs with animus and I'm on their website too and um, also, you can email me. I have an email address on my website, so you can kind of contact me. I also am on social media. most Facebook is the one I'm most active with, but um I'm on the other ones too. So you're welcome to engage with me that way too.
0: All right, well thanks maybe maybe one day uh i'll I'll find my way to one of your programs and meet a tree.
1: That would be wonderful. maybe in your adventurous the adventurous time in your life. Um, yeah, you do time for You do any, adventures.
0: do any stuff outside of the U.S.?
1: Um, I'm in I'm in Latvia in um, late June, uh, doing Ooh. prayers in the dark and a dream work intensive.
0: Ooh, cool! All right, well, I'll check it out. I think everything in Europe is just a hop, skip, and a jump. So,
1: yeah, that's what it seems like. Pretty everything's pretty close.
0: Awesome. It'll well, be back. great to
1: see you out in the wilderness.
0: I, I definitely need it. And uh, so thank, thank you for being a guide. And that's a wrap. So let's see what we got going on. No gardening news because no garden and movement. Been playing ultimate one or two nights a week, two days a week, Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings on the beach. Man, Beach Ultimate is hard. It is exhausting, but on the bright side. Well, I guess exhausting is also on the bright side, but also it doesn't hurt my legs. Not the way running, pounding on grass, or even worse, uh, artificial turf is. So I'm really enjoying that and looking forward to uh, much more. And otherwise been doing a lot of walking and jogging. I jogged uh, five and a half miles from our apartment to a police station in the north part of town in San Marti, Uh, where my kids were going to get their uh, NIA, some sort of uh, identity document for residency. And so jogged jogged there. That felt good to have a a purpose and a destination. And just the whole city is very walkable, very bikeable. In fact, the hardest part about walking is the bike lanes because they're silent and uh, they don't always obey the traffic laws. Um, So that's about it.